Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Welcome everyone to another episode of Nonprofit Lowdown. Today I am delighted to invite my friend Maureen Yusuf Morales to talk today about how to raise anti-racist kids. Mo and I have worked together 15 years ago. Yeah. It's been a minute. We were work spouses, and since then, Mo has gone on to do great things, including but not limited to founding her own middle school up in Harlem and is the newly appointed middle school head at St. Anne's School. And in between all that, has done a ton of work with diversity and working with educators around DEI and inclusion issues. Welcome, Mo. Thank you. Thanks, Rhea. I'm excited to be here. Mo, tell me a little bit in your own words about your trajectory starting from, I guess, when we started working together, which was your first job out of college. Technically, it was my second job. Okay. You'll always be number one for me, Rhea. I'm going into my 17th year in education this year, and I have primarily spent those past 16 years working in the middle grades, primarily in New York City, but there was a little bit of time where I was also working outside of the city and working more nationally. Most of my career has been around running out of school time programming, specifically academic programming, teaching, spent a lot of time teaching coaching teachers, being a principal and a school leader, and founding a school. And then throughout all of that work, DEI work has been pretty foundational, part of my interests and part of my official work, and then part of all the unofficial things, you know, like the many hats we wear as educators. Mm-hmm. So it's been a big part of it. And my newest job is at the St. Anne School in Brooklyn, and I will be the upper middle school head. That is so exciting. So when you and I first started working together, we were all of like in our early 20s when we were younger then, and you had a very clear vision of wanting to start a school, and then you started a school. Was it everything you imagined it would be? Yes, and when you found a school, you think, all right, I'm going to make my dream school. It's going to be all the things I've ever wanted, all the things that I always thought my other principals should do, I'm going to do. And then you get in there, and you realize that there are just a multitude of factors that I think you as a teacher or even a teacher leader cannot see the full scope that a principal sees. And then there are politics. And then there's your, for me, I was a charter school. So there's your authorizer and the things that they want. And then there are your funders and the things that they want and your board. So it's yours and it isn't essentially. So that that's what it was like for me. It was an, a magical experience and one that was all consuming in a lot of great ways. And then it also led to a lot of sleepless nights as well. And there was nothing I could have done to prepare for that kind of experience ahead of time. So because I'm totally self-centered, what I'm asking is, do you have a little bit more empathy for my situation as an executive director. I see where you're going. <laughs> yes, yes. I'll never forget, you know, Rhea and I, we worked really well together. We only ever got in one conflict ever. That's it. And it was over whiteboard you know, spray. Whiteboard cleaner. Yeah. Whiteboard cleaner is an essential <laughs> tool. Everybody should be able to get that if you're a classroom teacher. You should not have to pay for that with your own money. That was essentially our argument. No, no, no. That wasn't the argument. The argument was you had purchased whiteboard cleaner and I was worried about the budget. So as you were unpacking the supplies, I was like, do we really need whiteboard cleaner? And you were like, am I in charge of this budget or am I not in charge of this budget? And like, that's I t- true. I tell the story all the time, but I will say that when you open your school, I sent you a little package of whiteboard cleaner. 
you did. I didn't know it was from you because there was so much whiteboard cleaner we had bought because I learned my lesson. But I love that story. And you know what? It, it reminds me so much that that's the kind of thing like that a teacher could get so focused on, right? Of like, and then the school leader is thinking so much more broadly at that point about all the needs and all the different constituents and all the stakeholders. And I think at that point in my career, at like, I don't know, 24, I only, I saw such like a narrow scope. It's okay. I forgive you. You're pretty tremendous. People are loving this podcast so far. (laughs) I know. We're telling all the dirty details. Okay. But, but let's talk about specifically about what it means to work in an anti-racist school because somebody who, even at the tender age of 24, you were always very focused on issues of equity and inclusion and belonging. And then you had this opportunity to found your own school. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about what those practices that are considered to be anti-racist were for the audience. I think wanting to open an anti-racist school in and of itself, it's a huge paradigm shift because like many other institutions in the United States, schooling is full of systematic oppression, racism being one of those forms of oppression. And so if you're saying we want to open an anti-racist school, because racism is so much in the air we breathe in schools, part of virtually every policy that exists and is accepted within schooling in the United States, it really means having to actively push against all of those pieces. I always think about Bev Tate and her analogy of the walkway at the airport. And if racism is all of us walking on, all of us standing on a walkway that's moving in one direction, not even actively walking in that direction, but we're still moving in that direction. So what it means to be anti-racist then is to actively turn the other way and walk as fast as you can in the opposite direction. So if you take that analogy and you apply it to schools, then you all of a sudden see that every policy you're up against can be racist or is potentially foundation of racism within the school. So something as simple as working in it, having worked in a charter school, a policy that came up constantly was around uniforms. And whether or not the concept of uniforming children primarily happens in black and brown schools, primarily happens in the charter space. And I'm seeing this also now as a parent, like, I mean, there are lots of pros to uniforming to, I don't even know if that's really a a term uniforming, but to providing uniforms for children. But as a parent, I loved it because I didn't have to pay for new clothes, et cetera. I knew what my kids were going to wear every day when they woke up in the morning. But as a school leader, I started to see a lot of different angles around the ways in which we are controlling our young people and taking away pieces of their identity or how they want to express themselves. And there is so much policing in schools, in uniform schools in particular, around how students are wearing their uniform. Tucking in their shirts, is that too small on a student? Do we need to call home because they didn't come in the right uniform today? And there was, in particular, it felt like a lot of pressure around policing students' bodies. And I started, the further I got in my career, and especially after I founded my school, I realized that my own thinking around a seemingly simple topic like uniforms was laden with white supremacist norms that I had grown up with and gone to school with and had been indoctrinated with and was now holding and gatekeeping around even as a leader of color. And something as simple as uniform policy could be that and was that. 
And so throughout, you know, when we first opened the school, we had a very strict uniform policy. Then through time, and as we learned more about restorative justice practices, we ended up changing our uniform policy pretty significantly and really recognizing the ways in which we were upholding racist standards. So let me ask you this, because I think as a leader, it can be really hard to both run the school and also realize that like you are developing as a person and like you are going to make mistakes and that you're going to change as your understanding changes. So talk to me a little bit about those challenges that you've had and ways that you've really been able to evolve your own understanding around you know, inclusion and around restorative justice. I think the best leaders and the best teachers are folks who consider themselves to be lead learners, right? So you go in and you're chosen for your position because you have some level of expertise, but the more open you are to continuing to learn and to listen to those around you, the more you're going to be able to develop and change. And I think that's one of the hardest things about being an educator because what we hit a plateau, right? We get to like, I don't know, in New York City, it's like, you're five. You're like, I'm a pro. I'm an expert. No one can tell me nothing. Like, I know what I'm doing. And that's exactly the point in your career where you do need to keep pushing and growing and changing and shifting. And I ran into that. And when I became a principal, I think I definitely came to it with like, I know what I'm doing. I've run all these out of school time programs. I've trained 250 teachers before, blah, 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 all these things. And then it was an incredibly humbling experience. And I was back to square one. And I had to learn again and learn within my new context. One of the biggest areas that I learned within, like you were saying, is around restorative justice. And, and that for me was a pretty big shift in my practice, although I believed in it. And actually a lot of what we did at Breakthrough, we didn't call it restorative justice, but the ways in which we led community conversations, all school meeting, circling up with students and families when there was an issue, a lot of that is like the basis of restorative justice practices. So I do, the work that we did together, Rhea, many years ago, definitely set a foundation for me in that. And one of the things that I found in leading restorative justice, restorative justice practices in school that can be challenging is that it's such a paradigm shift because it's just not the way most of us were raised and not the way we went to school. So when we get into a schooling model where we think, well, when you do harm, you need to pay for it. There needs to be a punitive response to that, and that's how children learn. That's one of the greatest myths of our time. Children do not learn in that way. And one thing that I always say to my staff when we do restorative justice work for the first time is one of the things we have to let go of is that children change overnight. There is no experience in a young person's life that is going to help them to change immediately, change a practice or a habit overnight, unless it's something truly and deeply traumatic for them. We're not in the business of that. So change takes time and growth takes time. And that's one of the basic tenets of restorative practices is that there isn't going to be this like one thing that you do to a student, a punitive measure that's going to make the change for that person. Yeah, that's such a good point. It's funny that you say that. I think reflecting on it now, and you know, we were in our early 20s, we didn't really know anything. But I think we did stuff that was the right stuff to do. And we have a couple of alums on the call. So uh, in about 15 minutes when they open it up, I'd love to hear from the alums about their experience of breakthrough and how that may have impacted them as they went on in their educational career. So let me ask you this. So you have now had experience in district public schools 
in charter schools and in private schools. And I'm wondering if you can enlighten us as to any of the differences that you've noticed around the willingness to engage in anti-racist practices in these different environments. I can speak to charter and independent schools. I think it's been a while since I've worked in a traditional public school. And I do think that matters in this kind of a conversation because where we were 17 years ago, when I first entered a classroom in a district public school is a different conversation than where I think the DOE is today. Maybe not so different, and I think others on this call could attest to that. But even the conversations that we're having right now across different sectors of schooling in New York City is completely different than where we were a year ago, right? So I think what's been really interesting for me is reading Black at Instagrams of schools. I don't know how many folks on this on this webinar have been paying attention to this, but I've been looking at the Black at Instagrams for the school I'm going into, and there are many of them for a number of independent schools across the city. And I have also looked at the Black at Instagrams for some of the other institutions, some of the charters that I've worked at in the past too. And while they are such different sort of lanes of teaching and learning and craft and pedagogy is completely different, it is really painful and horrifying to see that black and brown children are still experiencing such intense levels of racism and discrimination and bias within such different forms of schooling. So I think in some ways it doesn't matter that, right. because the institution in and of itself is so broken that in such different forms of schooling, you can still experience, I mean, they are experienced maybe in different ways, mm -hmm. uh, but there's so many elements and themes that are the same that I've been noticing in these Instagram accounts. And just to clarify, Mo, when you say black at, can you explain that for folks who are not familiar with? Sure. So there's been a somewhat recent movement of anonymous Instagram accounts, and they have opened for lots of different industries, but specifically this spring, we saw them popping up for academic institutions. So a lot of colleges have them, um, including my college, Smith College has one. And then they open for independent schools or private schools, and then also for public schools and charter schools. And they are anonymous accounts where you can submit an experience of bias that you had and somewhat vet your story and then post it anonymously. And it's taken on a lot of different formats, but I think one of the biggest sort of aha moments that came out of it for some is that none of these stories were new and none of these experiences, unfortunately, are new, but now it's public and now it's being seen. And I do think it's an aha moment for a lot of white majority folks within these institutions. Right. So the, these are just Instagrams that are like black at Smith College or black at, you know, whatever school. Mm -hmm. So I have two last questions and then I'm going to open it up to the audience because I'm sure there are lots of folks who have things to say, particularly a lot of our BTNY alums. You and I came up in this sort of no excuses charter school movement, which I think even when we were young, when we were in our 20s and didn't know much about anything, still felt wrong to us. And I think that we got a lot of kids in our program that experienced a lot of harm and trauma at the hands of like the no excuses ed reform movement. So I'm just wondering if you have any further thoughts and understanding about that. And specifically, I'm thinking about the piece that just came out around democracy prep 
in Seth Andrews statement of the harm that he realizes that he has done. I don't know if you've seen it. And the response from black at democracy alumni. So I guess I'm, the question is like, what do you think about that? And has your understanding changed since we were 23, 24? Well, I want to say that when we were 23 and 24 and, and working at Breakthrough, we didn't use the no excuse model. And it sort of goes back to like the founders of the program were Lois, certainly, and other folks as well. We're so based in a completely different model of learning and teaching that I think is so much more aligned with practices now like restorative justice. So when we did start to learn about no excuse models, sort of like you see something shiny in the water and you think, oh, what's that, right? It felt really different. So I think I went into it curious more than anything else. And I ended up working at a no excuse school for a year. And within maybe a week, I realized that there is so much wrong with this that, and for the majority of students, while they could be like successful on the surface, there was so much regular daily harm being done, not just to our children, but also to our staff and faculty too. Certainly those of color, but then I think everyone experiencing a level of discomfort and the ways in which when you're working within a racist system, you're each taking on a piece to uphold that system and the stress that that then also can cause. I mean, your original question was, has my thinking changed around it? I think I know a lot more about it now and can name more now exactly what made me at that time feel so uncomfortable. I think most troubling and most immediately in the no excuse model, what you'll notice is the policing of children's bodies. So I talked about that with uniforms before. And my charter school, the one that I founded, was not a no excuse model. But there were elements of no excuse models that were then adopted by lots of different schools and uniform being one of them. And I think I saw this in particular around things like, well, the professional thing to do is to make eye contact when you're talking to someone and kind of taking that idea, which is based in a particular set of norms used in the United States, right? And then translating that into a intensive policing of children's bodies to the point where you're policing what they're looking at at all times and where their eyes are and for how long. And that kind of intensity and policing only happens in black and brown schools. I've worked now at three different independent schools or I'm about to work at a third different one. I've never seen practices like that there. Mm-hmm. And these are white majority schools and are, these are wealthy schools. Mm-hmm. And so that in and of itself, I think in the no excuse model is one of the most baseline foundational pieces that I think is deeply racist and problematic. Yeah, I agree with you. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit here to get into the topic at hand. But Mo, in addition to being an educator, you're also a mom of two small boys. And I'm just wondering, how do you think about raising them as anti-racists? Well, I identify as a woman of color. I'm originally from Bangladesh, and I moved to the U.S. with my parents um, when I was one. And so I see race in the United States through the lens of being a South Asian American woman coming from a Muslim family. And I say all of that because it's all mixed together, right, for me. It's not just race. It's being Muslim. It's being an immigrant into the United States. It's all of that intersectionality stuff. And 
for myself then in raising, and my kids are multiracial children. Their other parent is Puerto Rican. And, and they just look like your brown boys and just little brown boys. And I think about this a lot because as they have been growing older, studies show that kids recognize race as early as in their infanthood. So it's been a piece that I've been very conscious of and thinking about, and especially thinking about my own racial identity and level of pride and love that I had for my own racial identity and how I essentially for a long time in my life, growing up in the United States as an immigrant kid, like just didn't have that love for myself and my Bangladeshi background, language, food, culture. And so that's a piece that I've had to grow and really unpack like where that lack of self-love had come from. And and then now being a mom, thinking about all the ways in which I want to make sure that my kids don't have that experience with their own racial identity formation while still giving them space to figure it out too because they're growing up in a different time than I am and they're also multiracial. And so it's not just about being Bangladeshi American for them. It's also about being Puerto Rican. It's also being about being an identifiable brown child in New York City, in East Harlem, now moving to Brooklyn. So I think about all those pieces too. And the reason why I'm framing so much around this is because I think to be an anti-racist parent isn't the same for every parent because it has to do with your own identity to the way you see the world, your own racial identity, and then the racial identity of your children. And for many of us, that may be different. And so I think in order to raise anti-racist children, first, we need to be anti-racist adults ourselves and look at our own lives and practices and all of that before we can even think like, I'm going to raise an anti-racist child. And so a huge part of it for me has been unpacking my own practices around race and my own racial identity first before thinking about what I'm going to do with my kid. And then that's like lifelong, right? So that's like one path. And then it's like, all right, now I'm going to have to do the work with my kid too, because we're always building and flying the plane at the same time. And so then with my children, I've really thought first about exposure. So who are they being exposed to? Who are our friends? Who are they seeing in their family? Who are the people that they never get to meet? They don't know anything about. What might they think about people like that that they don't know anything about or they don't meet or they don't have any personal affiliation or contact with and starting there. And I read something, it was just an Instagram random meme. I'll try to find it and and share it, but it was, and I'll try to find the source, but it had like two columns. It was like in one column, it was like, you are an inclusive parent if you do the following. If you buy books with narrators and of different racial backgrounds and make sure you have a diverse library and you look at your toys that way and you, you kind of are curating this life for your children and this childhood life where they're seeing a lot of different people. But you're an anti-racist parent if you're doing all those things and talking about the systemic oppression of people of color in the United States and exactly how to break that down. I really kind of floored thinking, am I doing the second Piece. My kids are two and a half and six. And how honest am I being with them about what's happening in our country? So th- I think that was a really good push for me because without talking about systemic oppression openly and honestly with our children as young as two and a half and, five and six, then we're not doing anything more. We're not walking fast enough on that walkway. Systemic racism is a really hard concept for grown-ups. So how do you talk about it with a six-year-old or a two-and-a-half-year-old? Like, what's the well, level of like complexity here? That okay. <laughs> so to be fair, our two-and-a-half-year-old, like sometimes he doesn't understand when I say 
please throw this to garbage and he'll take like dirty something dirty like a diaper and put it in the cabinet so we're doing baby steps over there I think for the two and a half year old it probably is looking more like being an inclusive parent and like exposure thinking what are the stories he's hearing what what isn't he hearing but for the six-year-old I mean he's six right we're not the only people he sees on a daily basis I mean now we are but other than now we weren't before the pandemic and there are a lot of ways especially that we're raising little boys to think about the world to idolize cops as an example and the police force and so that was one conversation we recently had around there are actually some really challenging and hard to hear truths that we need to share with you about the police force and the institution of policing and not just say the other like there are some good police and there are some police that make bad decisions no we had to like kind of take away the sugar coating and talk about the history of racist policing and that people who may both be doing something right or something wrong could be treated completely differently by the police force, regardless of the skin color or the racial background of the police officer. That's like another piece to it. It adds a whole other layer of complication because there are ideas and stereotypes and racist ideas around specific groups in the United States and breaking that down and how people have been killed and murdered because of this and not just a few. So that was a hard conversation and I got a lot of help from the internets on that and just reached out to a lot of other families of color and there are some amazing people who have documented their own conversations with their children for the purposes of of educating others that I leaned on to be able to have this own conversation with my own child. And how'd that go for your six-year-old? He was shocked. He was scared. He immediately said, I can't believe this is still happening. Because Mm. in his own education, he has learned about a history of racism in the United States a little bit in within schools, but you know, sort of like the sugar-coated version of white white version of it, right? So he knew that from school. And then we have our own set of books and all the things we're doing at home to try to again offer a counter-narrative. But he really was unprepared for what I shared with him that morning was like the day after his sixth birthday um, that we talked to like about this. And since then we've tried to talk about it. We just talk about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was, uh, I watched that CNN Sesame Street special. All right. Not gonna lie. I didn't watch the whole thing. Saw the highlights, but it was interesting to me to think about how to talk to kids like the Elmo character about race in a way that made sense, but was also not so overwhelming. Um, they are still kids. So I'm going to call on Stella, one of our BTNY alums. So I'm going to ask you to ask your question. Hi, Stella. I wanted to ask, do you think that schools should teach civic courses, especially in high schools? And how would this conversation, like education and civic courses, be able to aid our conversation regarding being anti-racist? Great question. Well, first of all, I think that we have different subjects in schools, but that the work of being anti-racist doesn't live in any one classroom. And that is another myth that we should get rid of as quickly as possible. Because the work of being anti-racist and and teaching specifically in an anti-racist way in schools is the work of every classroom teacher in the school overall. And that's in your math classrooms, your science classrooms, your civics classrooms, your history rooms, everywhere. So yes, I think civics should be taught in every grade level. But I also think if we're thinking about it as a catch-all for 
this is where anti-racism could come into a school. That's part of it, but the whole school and all parts of the curriculum need to be looked at through the, this lens. Follow-up question. So I um, recently, right, uh, a lot of when the police, the whole uh, racial injustice event started going on, a lot of the schools started implementing programs where anti-racist or teachers are started going to seminars where we're talking about these events and how we talk to students in general. And personally, I feel like those conversations cannot go anywhere unless us as individuals look at ourselves and where we stand in terms of these conversations. And what advice would you give to someone who's struggling to have this candid uh, conversation with themselves? Like, how should they go about learning about where their own biases, implicit biases are, and how to combat, like, their implicit bias and to have conversation with people in general? I think that they need to choose a place and start. So sometimes the injustice in the world can feel so enormous for us that it can feel like, well, what's the point? What can I do? How can I fix this? I'm just one person. And that form of thinking, I think it's fixed mindset. And we talk a lot about that in schools, about being more flexible as a thinker. And once you let go of that kind of mindset, you lean into following a more growth mindset, you can open yourself up to say, okay, well, I may not be able to fix everything, but I'm going to choose this one thing. I'm going to change my language in this way. I'm going to change a practice of mine. I am going to read this book that I hadn't read before. And I mean, something that we have today that we didn't have when we were kids, okay, let's be real. We did not have the internet. Rhea and I, the AOL came when I was in eighth grade. Okay, you probably don't know what that is, Stella. America Online. And uh, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of information then, but I think that it's such a tool we have today. If you don't know something, there is definitely a tutorial out there for you on YouTube, somebody inspirational that is willing to teach you about it and for free, aside for the cost for your internet. And so I think we need to take advantage of that too. I remember being in college and someone getting really upset with my white peers in college and saying, educate yourself. You're at this fancy institution paying tens of thousands of dollars a year. Go to the library and educate yourself. This is actually a brilliant segue into old school Reggie Wilborn. Reggie, ask your question. Hey, my friends. How are you? Hi, Reggie. Hey, it's good to see you. It's good to hear you all. I would love to catch up, but I'll, I'll jump straight to the question here because it is a good segue. And you were talking about this a bit with Black At. Could you talk a little bit more about the role you see technology taking and working against systematic racism, whether that be within the academic institution itself or just you know, parents at home? That's a great question. I've been thinking about this a lot. So why are our young people turning to Instagram and having to put their trauma on display and how painful that may be for them, certainly could be for them. And I've been thinking about, I submitted a story from my own experiences, a couple of stories in a couple of different institutions that I was a student at on some of the Instagrams also. And I thought, why am I doing this? What is my point in doing this? And I think one of the things we gain from it is validation, that my experience was real. It happened to me. It hurt. And 
also when you scroll through all of these stories, literally thousands of them, you realize that it's not just you. And I think a lot of us as folks of color growing up in the United States had those moments of like sheer embarrassment, pain, trauma, where we're thinking, it's just me. And if I change this about myself, if I go somewhere else, or I need to avoid that person or whatever it is. And I think the Instagram offers this safety in numbers. I mean, the anonymity piece, first of all, but then also on top of that, you're part of a movement or a wave. And that feels so much less lonely and can feel powerful. And so I think your other part of the question is, how do I see this working against systemic racism? I think it's still up in the air whether or not something like Instagram and individual stories will be able to break down systemic racism. And I say that because one of the things that I note on the Instagram, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, Aria, your thoughts, and Reggie, yours, is I notice the trend, it does feel very interpersonal. Very few stories on the Instagram talk about institutional policies, as an example, and more so focus on an individual moment of racism between two people, or sometimes a group of people and another group of people. And I think when we continue to write stories in this way, although, yes, these are our lived experiences, there is a, a piece missed around what is it about the institution and the rules written and unwritten that enable folks to act in the way that they have. And that's the piece that I think, if we're going to dismantle systemic racism, then we need to get at that piece too. And a lot of the Instagram stories, if they are truly taken under consideration and not looked at as one instance at a time, and looked instead as a number of different accounts of systemic racism, and let's now look at what it is about the system that is enabling this, then we can use it to break down systemic racism. But I worry that it becomes, it's like about cancel culture and that it becomes about naming a couple of people that, or really hundreds of thousands of people that are racist instead of saying, how did they get that way? What is the system that enabled that? And as a follow-up question, Mo, because I know that there are a number of folks who are parents on this call. As a parent, what can one do in order to start to engage in these conversations with their children's schools? I don't have a lot of mom friends, those who know me know. I don't have that many friends in general because my life is crazy. But I have one mom friend that is also a colleague of mine that we, and we used to work together. And they uh, make it a point to connect with their school principal after every school event and to break down what that school event felt like as a parent of color and also for their child of color, and also bring up if there were any parts of it that were challenging or problematic. And I think about this friend because I think, wow, that is extremely tiring to do that and to have to uphold that, and that is not their job. They shouldn't have to do that, but they do because it's their kid, and they want to make sure they're getting the best experience possible for their child. But I think that responsibility does lie, unfortunately, on families. And I think that when we see something that's happening in the schools that our children go to, that's not okay, that doesn't sit right with us, we need to push ourselves out of our comfort zone and use the voice that we have to say something to the teacher, to the administrator. And I think a lot of times 
in my family, my immigrant family was like, no, do not say anything. Never, ever go to the teacher or the principal. Just put your head down. You should just be happy you live here, right? And I understand that from my parents' generation. And I totally respect their decision because they had to do that to be able to survive living in the United States in the 80s and 90s. And I'm unwilling to do that for my children here. And I do feel a certain level of entitlement growing up in the United States that they didn't, being able to speak English without an accent. They don't have that. And I do, and I'm going to use that privilege to be able to shift that conversation with the school leaders of my children's schools. I think it's absolutely our responsibility. Well, speaking of families, I'm going to call on Maimuna, who is an old school breakthrough parent who is now a DEI specialist and educator in her own way. So Maimuna, do you want to unmute yourself and join in the convo? Yeah. Hi, Mo. Hi, Leah. Hi. Hi. It's so great to hear your voice. <laughs> Hi. Well, anyway, I'm going to say it like uh, the last speaker said, we will catch up another time. So because if we're going to do that, we're going to spend the next hour talking about what we've done, what we've missed, and what we're going to move forward doing. And I think you spoke to some of it. As much as I'm an educator, I think I put being a parent first. And that's how I step forward in any platform that I go into. So when you were talking about the school setup and everything, what came to mind is that because we continue to build those spaces without involving parents in the design. This is why it's continued to fail. And I said that in a meeting that I was yesterday when they kept talking about research evidence-based. And I said, we need to learn, we need to bring culturally responsive practice base into the space. And also evidence-based, you talk about it, but what about practice-based? So I said, if you do not know what it is like to be what you are studying, you will continue to get it wrong. And I think in schools, that's what is happening. Parents are the backbone of everything that we do. And we always put ourselves forward as educators as if we are the experts. Parents' uh, voice need to come into that space for everything to succeed. And like you said, I speak with an accent, but I also develop a privilege with that because I went back to schooling here. So I developed the confidence to know that my accent is not a deficit. It actually empowers me to speak on behalf of people that have other accents. And also to say to people, I do speak like this, not with the American accent, because I speak about three, four languages. That means my brain is a super brain, more than that. And for me to speak in certain platform or to say something, I have to literally translate in my brain quickly to be able to communicate that to you. So being in my present, actually, it should be a privilege, not a default. So I am facilitating in a conference called US Nani Conference, which is on LinkedIn that I posted. I spoke to my team, which is the Center on Cultural Race and Equity in Bank Street, that we need to facilitate in that platform. Because when I came here as an immigrant, initially, what I did was that was the only job. I came in as an educator, but my qualifications were not taken seriously. So the only place I could go to was to be a nanny. That came naturally to me. And that was a very powerful place. But in that space, some of the families that I served required that I document their child's development. What happened from morning? What did he eat? 
When did he poop? How many? So I had to go back and read child development books in order to know what I'm saying. And that was how I got triggered into going into early childhood because I was a science teacher, but I said, okay, if this is what it requires for me to understand. So I don't want to take up your space, but I just appreciate this talk. Really, I do. And I am a strong parent advocate and an early childhood advocate. So in any platform, I speak to this and I will be speaking in that. And that title of that is called Do Children See Color? Amuna, we'll make sure to put that in the show notes. So yeah. I'll get the information from you so folks on the call can, Thank you. can learn about it. And actually feel free to put it in the chat too. I think we have time for one more question. Hi. Hi, Mo. Um, hey, Amy. Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. And I do work within sort of the traditional charter, no excuse model and doing a lot of reflection and sort of reconciling of that in, in recent months. And I just wanted to ask specifically, do you think that there's any practices from that model that can be revised? Like one thing in particular I'm thinking about is I've always expected my students to sit up because I see it as uh, being really correlated with their confidence and their ability to do their best job in the lesson that we have. I don't know how to do that without feeling like I'm policing the, them physically. So is that an example of something that should just be, like my expectation should be completely changed? Or is there a way to, to still have that expectation but not do the sort of physical policing that, that brings the, the history and the systemic racism with it? I think that's a great question, Amy. And I want to say, I, you know, Amy and I worked together, um, and she was my director of curriculum and instruction. She's brilliant, and I've been in your classroom, Amy, and I've seen what exactly what you're talking about. One of the things that I think is important when I've heard you say to students before, I, I want you to sit up right now, is you always frame it around this piece around being proud of yourself. You want everyone to hear what you're saying right now. It's important what you're saying. And I think there's a real difference between that and I've said this before. I don't know if I've, if I've said this to you, Amy, or I definitely said this to Rhea. When you see a master teacher teaching and you see magic happening and you're a novice teacher and you're trying to repeat that, you're taking a photocopy of that, right? And what you're not seeing, what you may see is Amy saying, please sit up when you're talking in class. What you might not have remembered is her rationale for why she said that. And so I'm the novice teacher. I'm like, Amy says kids should sit up in her class. So I'm going to have kids sit up in my class too. So eventually I get further in my career and, you know, uh, Stella comes into my classroom. She sees me teaching and she says, well, Mo doesn't allow anyone to have their head down in their classroom. So I'm not going to allow it either. And this is what I see happening in education. We're taking a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. And we know as teachers, those of us who are educators on this call, that like that 10th photocopy just doesn't have the same quality that the first one did. And that I use this analogy a lot to think about some of the most challenging practices that I do believe are carried out in racist ways under a no excuse model came from really genuine intentions and truly authentic practices that were meaningful but got lost along the way. And I do think that posture and eye contact are examples of that. That not every teacher is able to recognize the nuances of the situation and also unpack and explain why it is that you have this expectation and what it means. And on top of that, recognize that this is a racialized conversation that we're having right now about sitting up. 
right? And who, what is my race as the person who's asking this other person to sit up? There's also a power dynamic of me being the adult and the teacher in the classroom and the young person that I'm talking to. So like all of those pieces need to be considered too. Amy, does it answer your question? That's, I have no yes. answers on this. Yeah, that's, that's super helpful to hear. Thank you so much. Well, I think the idea about really setting the intention resonates because I, I do think about some of the practices that we had at Breakthrough. And like we were young, we didn't know what we were doing, but I think we were always really trying to be very intentional about the things that we were asking kids to do. I was, can I say something to that? I was thinking yep. about our ha the handshaking. Well, first of all, handshaking is canceled now because germs, germs <laughs> right. in the pandemic. Ger germs in oh. the pandemic. So that's over. But I was going to say, we one of the practices that Rhea and I talked about a lot and it's part of like our culture curriculum at Breakthrough is around handshaking. And I've been thinking about that because I do think it could be a, another, it, there is a whole reason why we thought our kids should shake hands and have a firm handshake. Because we were working within a set of white cultural norms and we wanted our children to be successful within that world and feel comfortable there and have a level of confidence like Amy like you talked about and I think that's one of the biggest tensions here that we should name is that what are we teaching our young people are we teaching them to operate within this world of white supremacist culture and white culture norms and be able to move within that space I mean, I feel like that's practical and that is what we have to do to some extent. On the flip side, is it that we should be really teaching and working on how to dismantle that world? And that's a whole other set of tools and skills and stop teaching into the norms of that world. I mean, I feel this tension. I feel it as an educator. I feel it as a parent. I feel it as a woman of color going into a predominantly white institution, having worked at other white institutions having a position of power? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a complex issue and I wonder if it's a yes and, right? It's like, yes, we must prepare our students for the world they're going to live in and we also need to teach them about the world as it could be if we dismantle racism. But I think it's hard, it's a complex issue. We are out of time though. Any last thoughts as we wrap up? This has been super informative and it's always fun to spend time with you and I really have enjoyed all of the, breakthrough folks on the call as well. So let's have a little separate reunion. reunion. Some other point. I guess I would want to close with saying that one thing I try to do in my own career and personal life is do one thing that I haven't done before, right? So there are lots of mistakes that I've made in my career and a lot of ways that myself as a person of color has upheld racist standards and policies within schools, within my own family and within the way I'm raising my children. And that can weigh us down a lot. And so one new thing I'm trying is to say, okay, let me name the thing that I did before and let me take one step in the other direction to change it and push the work forward and keep walk a little faster on the walkway. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Mo. This is always so fun. Thanks so much. Enjoy your Thursday.